connected. Okay, God is good. We are going, and I say God is good because some of the stuff I'm going to begin to tell you would make you think perhaps otherwise. Because we are doing a dis- study on discipleship. Last week we talked about Jesus' call to follow me. This week we're going to continue the introduction with the call to discipleship where we are called to take up our cross. And we're going to talk about that. And sometimes as you read those types of scriptures, as you engage that aspect of the Christian walk, you can begin to think, well, why did God set it up like this? Why did God require this? And we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about some of the challenges that we go through and why we go through them. They're very necessary. And in fact, they are reflective of the goodness of God. Some of those difficult things, those sufferings, those tribulations that we go through are reflective of the goodness of God. So I want to do a quick review of last week. Last week we were looking at Peter and Peter's call to discipleship where Jesus there on the Sea of Galilee called Peter to come and to follow him and he would make them fishers of men. So that was that first call that all of us receive. All of us at some point in time receive a call from God to come and to follow Him. And He will do something with our lives. He will transform our lives. He will ultimately bring us into His very presence. So there's that first call, but then we talked about as we follow Jesus, as we walk with Him, there's a focusing of the call. And that happened for Peter. Peter grew in his understanding of who Jesus was and what his call was all about. So there was a focusing of it to where Peter was able to uh, proclaim that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so Peter understood that as his call was focused. And then we saw there once again on the shores of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus was speaking to Peter after the resurrection. And he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter would, would respond, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus would say, then feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Engage in the ministry that I have given unto you. So there's that fulfilling of the call, the stepping out in faith into what God has for us. Fulfilling the call requires loving Jesus. Just as Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? So Peter wrote in his first epistle that we love Jesus even though we have not seen him. We love him. And he fills our hearts with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So to fulfill the call, we must love Jesus. But also to fulfill the call, we must have faith. A belief in the call, a belief in the value of the call that God has given to each one of us. There is that parable that Jesus told about the pearl of great price and how when the the merchant found the pearl, he went and sold everything that he had so that he could buy that pearl and hold it to himself. That is what happens when we begin to value the call of God in our lives. Everything else becomes less worthwhile, less valued. The preeminent value 
in our life becomes the call of God. And in order to have that kind of a value on the call of God, what I want to say to you is that you must look forward beyond what you can see in this life. If you only look at what happens in this life, and this life is the end-all and the be-all of your existence, then the call is not going to be something that you value. The call is not going to be something that you are able to step into by faith. Because faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. And remember, I told you last week, we read through the passage there in Colossians chapter 3 that says, if you have then been raised with Christ, look up, look up to heaven. Focus your attention on heavenly things. And that's where faith comes within the call. The value of the call is not only in this life, but it's also in the life to come, which honestly is much more real than the life we live now. They're connected, but our ultimate existence is eternal. It's when these bodies are transformed, resurrected. There will come times in your life as you walk in faith, fulfilling God's call upon your life, whatever that may be. You're fulfilling that call, and it's very hard. It's challenging. We have seen throughout history Christian martyrs who have literally given up their life for the sake of the call. And it's because they are able to look beyond this life and understand that there is a life to be lived after our resurrection. That God is attending to this life that we live. He's watching how we live. And it says that we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There will come a time where you and I as believers, as children of God, will stand before what the Bible calls the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. And He will evaluate all of our works, all of the lives that we have lived, what we have done in Christ. And based upon that valuation, it says in 1 Corinthians 3 that some of our works will be judged as gold and silver and precious stones. And the foundation that has been laid by Christ and the apostles, we will have built upon with value and importance because we will have looked beyond our existence in this life to that life that exists beyond what we can see. We will judge that to be more real even than the life we are living here today. It's a paradox. I get that. But it's true. Some who are Christians, it says, will have their works evaluated as wood, hay, and stubble. And in the fire of God's judgment, they'll be burned up. It says they won't lose their salvation, but they will lose their reward. And so, as we live this life of discipleship, as we fulfill the call, we must have our vision beyond. It says in in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the suffering of the cross. Now, what are you going through 
today? What suffering are you experiencing as a disciple of Jesus Christ? I don't know. I'm certain that you are experiencing it as you walk in faith, as you reflect the light and the love and the life of Jesus Christ, you are going to experience persecution. The Bible promises it. It, said, it says all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So you're going to have some persecution. You're going to have some suffering. But it is the fire through which God develops us, refines us, purifies us, so that all that is left is pure gold. No dross remains. All the chaff burned up in our lives. God is creating something beautiful. Do you know that the Bible says that you are God's magnificent work of art in Ephesians? It says you are his poema, his masterwork. And so he's at work in your life each and every day, attending to you. Stop and think about this for just a second. Do you go through your day expecting, expecting to hear the voice of God speaking to you? I hope you do. I hope you do because that's exactly what we should expect. We should anticipate that God is communicating to us. He is speaking to us in a variety of ways through the body of Christ, through the Word of God, through experience. Sometimes, for some people in certain situations, He may even speak to you audibly, as clear as the sun shines in the sky. But we should expect to hear from God, shouldn't we? If we are being His disciples, if we are following after Him day in and day out, ought we not to expect that He will speak to us and tell us, go this way, don't go that way. This is the direction I am heading. But so often our lives are impoverished as Christians because we do not anticipate, we do not listen for, we do not discern the voice of God in our lives. So, as we fulfill the call, we love Jesus. We walk by faith because we value the call. And then we must take action in order to fulfill the call. We must take action. Faith without works, the Bible says, is dead, being by itself. So when we fulfill the call, it does involve you getting up out of your seat and doing something. Now, here's the deal. What I do in order to fulfill the call may look vastly different than what you do to fulfill the call. Now, over the course of the next several months, we're going to be looking at the four words. Those are basic landmarks, framework within which we can understand the call of God and what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But what I do to fulfill that call looks different than what you do. Remember, they're on the shores of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus is reaffirming to Peter his call to ministry. And at the end of it, Peter says, well, what about this guy, Lord? What about John? How come I have to go to the cross? Because Jesus essentially told Peter, you're going to die, Peter. 
You're going to go somewhere where you do not want to go. And others are going to take you there. And so Peter's thinking, okay, that's my life as a disciple. What about John? And Jesus, interestingly, says to Peter, you pay attention to what I've asked you to do. If I want him to stay until I return, what's that to you? So I want you to understand that your call is uniquely yours. Your walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ is what God wants it to be. Not what I want it to be. Not what someone else wants it to be. It should look exactly like God wants it to look. Understand that. Get that into your spirit. Because we live, unfortunately, in a context, not in this congregation, thankfully, at least I have not experienced it, but I have experienced it throughout my life as a Christian, where there are a lot of people looking at the speck in your eye instead of worrying about the plank in their own. So as disciples, we are called to action based upon what our Lord, our Master, Jesus Christ, calls us to do. Now, that's just the review. We're just getting started. Matthew chapter 16. Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And from that time on, it says, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, no doubt somewhat empowered by the fact that Jesus had affirmed to Peter that he had been revealed uh, through the Father, had been revealed that Jesus was the Messiah, Peter steps up and says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. See, Jesus has been telling them he must go to the cross. He must die for the sins of the world. And Peter is trying to dissuade him of that notion. And Jesus calls him out for what? He is at that point. He is an adversary, a Satan. Jesus then said to his disciples, and here's, here's the crux of today's message, because Jesus is saying this also to you and to me. This was not just for these men. It's for all of those who are called to follow. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple. I assume that that is every person here this morning. You are here in church because God has called you to follow after His Son. If that has not occurred in your life, if you have not been called to follow, then you're in church here this morning because God wants you to follow. God is calling you. And you need to listen to that voice saying, come and follow me. But if you have determined that you want to be His disciple, you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then Jesus says you must, not you should, not it would be a good idea if, but you must deny yourself and take up your cross. Again, 
Your cross, not my cross. Your cross. And follow Him. So what is the cross? As I, as I mentioned to you, it's different for each one of us. It looks different for you than it does for me. But there are some elements of taking up our cross that are going to be consistent for all of us. The cross means rejection. Jesus was rejected by this world he came to save. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him, the Bible says. So the cross is rejection. The cross is shame. As Jesus hung on the cross, what you need to understand is that the crosses, the places of execution, were located in a position of high traffic. People were coming and going all of the time. Everyone saw those who were being crucified just outside of Jerusalem. And that was the intent. It was specifically the intent to cause people to see those who had opposed the Roman Empire, what their end result was. And a part of that also was to shame them. They were hung upon the cross entirely naked without anything covering them and in a position of absolute ridicule, for lack of a better term, I suppose. People literally would stand and mock those who were on the cross. So the cross is a place of rejection. It's a place of shame. It's a place of suffering. I described to you a few weeks ago what someone who was crucified would go through, literally suffocating to death over a long period of time, let alone the excruciating agony of the nails and the, the birds that would come and peck at them, the thirst that they would experience. All of that suffering is a part of the cross. Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 3 that he wanted to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. So far, so good. I want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of his resurrection, don't you? Power that we hear about when all those mega church television evangelists talk to us about the power. But there's a phrase that follows right after that. And the fellowship of his sufferings. So the cross is about suffering. It's about rejection. and It's about shame. And ultimately, it's about death. Jesus says the disciple must deny themselves and literally deny themselves of their own life, their own decisions about how their life ought to be. Because if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you are going to enter into that servant-master role, then Jesus is the one who gets to determine what your life is looks like, what your decisions are, not you. You must deny yourself if you're going to be his disciple. Now, that's not easy stuff, church. This is not easy to preach. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow after me. That is why Jesus says in Luke chapter 14 that we must count the cost. He very clearly warns those following after them that they must count the cost 
if they are going to follow after him because it is not going to be a life of self-fulfillment. You know, uh, for those of you who ever took uh, Psychology 101, we all learned about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and ultimately it's about self-actualization. But that's not how the gospel works. The gospel is about death to self. And we must count the cost. Am I willing to lay down my life and follow after Jesus as my master? Or do I want it both ways? I want to read to you out of Luke chapter 9. There are three examples of people who are either interested in becoming a disciple of Jesus and a follower of Jesus, or who have been called specifically by Jesus to follow him. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. So here's a man who desires to follow after Jesus, desires to go where he goes, expresses that specifically to Jesus. And Jesus replies to him, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Which comes first, following after Jesus or material comfort in your life? Because so often it is the case that we will be required to go without material comforts if we are a follower of Jesus Christ. When that choice comes, which way do you go? There was the rich young ruler who wanted to find out what he needed to obtain eternal life. And he came to Jesus and he said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's God. And he's essentially asserting to the young man, Understand, young man, that you're talking to God as I speak to you. And he says, you know the commandments, and Jesus rehearses them for him. And the young man says, all of these I have kept since I was a very young boy. Now, interestingly, Jesus only referred to the parts of the commandment, the first table of the law. All of these I have kept. And Jesus looked at him and and loved him, the Bible says. And then he says, one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and then come and follow me. Because Jesus saw into the heart of this young man, saw that this young man's wealth, this young man's material comfort was superior for him than was following after God. Same case here. This guy wanted to follow after Jesus, but Jesus said, do you know what you're saying? Because sometimes it's going to get very difficult and you won't have a roof over your head. To another man, Jesus said, follow me. And the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So here's a man that Jesus called, said to follow him. And the man said, I've got worldly obligations I've got to attend to first, Lord. I've got to go and bury my father. Now that's not to say that his father was dead might not have even been near death. But it was the custom for the son to bury the father. And what this man literally was saying to Jesus after Jesus had called him was, I want to tend to my worldly obligations. And when it's convenient for me, Lord, then I'll follow you. 
when it fits into my schedule, then I'll take care of preaching the gospel. And to still another, he said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. So here, again, this, this third person asserts a desire to become a disciple, to become a follower of Jesus. I will follow you, Lord, but first I've got family obligations, family connections that I must take care of. And Jesus replies, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, this is a hard thing for for anyone who wants to follow after Jesus, but it is true. It is true. We must love Jesus more than we love our own family. Jesus said, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So, the call to discipleship is not a call to comfort. It's not a call to live a life based on your own philosophy, your own way of viewing the world. It's a call to obedience. Obedience is the key. Obedience is the key. When Jesus tells us to do something, when we come across a passage in Scripture that tells us to do something, obedience is the key. Not debate. Not discussion. But obedience. Jesus has to be our preeminent value. Now this is not to say that we are not to love our family. Absolutely not. It's talking about a prioritization. What is the most important to you? Comfort? Wealth? Worldly obligation, family connections, or Jesus. That's the call to deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, interestingly, interestingly, as I preach this, and I can see in some of your faces sort of that deer in the headlight look. It's like, oh boy. But here's the deal. Because a lot of people think, oh, if I follow after Jesus, if I, if I commit myself to be a disciple, he's going to send me off to some place that's far, far away into some terribly desperate situation and it's going to be the worst thing that ever happened to me. And I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe that's the case. Jesus says, whoever finds their life in this world will lose it. So in other words, if you value material possessions above Jesus, if you value worldly obligations above Jesus, if you value family connections above Jesus, if you find your life in this world, Jesus says that you are going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. In other words, that life of significance. That's what we're looking for, isn't it? That's what we're all about, isn't it? To have a life of meaning, a life of significance, a life that matters here and also in the world to come. Gold, silver, precious stones. We want a life of significance. That is what I desire for myself and that I know is what you long for. A life of significance. And Jesus says that you will find that life if you value Him above all other things and lose your life for his sake. 
There's a scripture that I love to give to people because people so often think that if I give my life to Jesus, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. I'm going to be, you know, sent to Africa or whatever or Russia or some foreign place. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, it is God who is at work in you. So God's at work in you. Remember what I said when we started God speaking to us? It's God who is at work in you, church. Now listen to this. Pay attention. God is at work in you to will or to have the desire and to work or to carry out that desire for his good pleasure. So let me repeat that again. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when you lose your life for Jesus' sake, God begins to work in you. It says in Psalm 37 that when we value the Lord above all other things, he will give us the desires of our heart because our hearts will be focused on him. And we will have a desire to do exactly what God ordains for us to do. That's what Jesus is talking about here, talking about finding life, finding that significance, that value in what we do. It will be significant. It will be of great value because it will be given to you by God. See, a lot of times when we think about discipleship, we think we want something manageable. We want a protocol, a, a program, a project, something that we can manage and, and, and make very clear and have it very secure for us. But there is nothing secure about being a disciple of Jesus Christ except that you will find your life. Everything else is an adventure. Everything else is... well. Martin Luther, I think, said it best. He said, the life of a disciple is, the not, is not the life of comprehension. In other words, you cannot comprehend what it means to be a disciple. Today, if you've heard my voice and you decide, I want to become a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to live the life of a disciple, you have no idea, and I have no idea what that means for you. The life of the disciple is incomprehensible, Luther said. Because it's the infinite God living out his plans and purposes through vessels that are frail and broken. So what is the, the call to take up our cross and lay down our lives? Well, I think that ultimately it's a call to be like Jesus. Jesus said, if they've called the Lord of the house Beelzebub, what do you think they're going to call you? It's enough that a disciple is as his master. So the call to discipleship is a call for us to be like Jesus. It's a gracious call when you stop and think about it. It's a gracious call that God desires that you become like His Son. 
And that's why the suffering, that's why the rejection, that's why the shame, that's why the death. Because Jesus went through all of those things to pay for our sin. And we are following after him. And that is why we go through those things as well. That is why Jesus is calling you and me to take up our crosses and follow after him. Now, here's what I want to conclude with. It's the same thing I said to you as we started. And and I just cannot uh, exhort you enough to listen to this. God is speaking to you. Now, up to this point, perhaps you've not heard him well. Perhaps some of you are hearing him. But God is speaking to you. We absolutely must expect that he will speak to us if we are going to be his disciples. If we are going to follow after him, he will speak to us. And as we cover the four words, particularly as we go through the first word, growing, we will talk about different ways in which God speaks to us. Just this week, I was sitting in the choir loft and I was struggling with this message because this is not an easy message to, to preach to, to a congregation. Don't go to that church. They want you to die. It's not an easy message. And I was struggling with it. Lord, is this really the direction you want us to go? Is this, this pathway of discipleship really where you want to go? And, and I picked up the choir song that we heard this morning. What shall I offer to my God? And I began to read the lyrics, and I'm going to read them to you again. With what shall I come before the Lord? What shall I offer my God? If I could bring a perfect offering, would the Lord be pleased with me? If I give the best of all I possess, will I live eternally? With what shall I come before the Lord? What shall I offer my God? God asks that I live justly, revealing truth for all to see. God asks that I show mercy for those who are struggling to be free and to walk humbly with the one who gave life and breath to me. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Ever only all for thee. As I read those words, I knew that the message today was for you. Because God was speaking to me. He was confirming to me. What our lives as Christians is all about. I want you to find your life for the sake of Christ. I want myself to find my life of significance and value in him. And the only way for us to do that, church, is by taking up our cross and following after him. It's a gracious call, and we are fortunate and most blessed to have it. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the word today. I thank you that though it is a hard word to hear, no truer words are spoken. Because it is about life. And so my prayer for myself and for these precious saints Lord, is that each one of us would count the cost, take up our cross, and follow after you. Deny ourselves for your sake that we might find what true life is all about, both here and now, and also in the world to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's stand, and we're going to conclude with the hymn, Be Thou My Vision.